It's the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm Jeffrey Grosenbach. May 2nd, 2008, show number 74. Today I spoke with Ryan Norbauer, a consultant out of Boston who manages a team of Rails contributors in India. Exciting things have been happening in the Rails community lately. Rails Source has moved to GitHub and tickets and patches have moved to Lighthouse. We have a new Rails deployment option with Mod Rails moving back to the Apache web server, quite possibly for many people, and RailsConf is coming up. I'm going to be there and interviewing quite a few different people, so look for that at the end of this month. Also, you have 24 hours to get a proposal in if you want to speak at the Lone Star Ruby Conference. It was a big event last year, and they're getting ready to do it again this year, along with the Ruby Hoedown in North Carolina and a bunch of other local Ruby conferences. The Ruby on Rails podcast is sponsored by Atlantic Dominion Solutions, located at techcfl.com. ADS is a web development innovator that specializes in building user-focused Rails applications and enhancing their performance with Amazon Web Services. ADS also provides 24-7 monitoring and management of EC2 deployments as well as fully managed hosting on virtual servers optimized for Rails applications. So it's Jeffrey Grossenbach, Ruby on Rails podcast. First interview that I've ever done actually in the city of Seattle, at least in my memory, and sitting here with Ryan Norbauer of Norbauer Incorporated from Boston, who happens to be in town and has worked on quite a few different projects. So welcome to Seattle. Thank you very much. So first thing, maybe the most controversial, is that you're doing a little bit of working with firms in, or one particular firm, in India. Tell us about how that works. Uh, how did that all start? Sure. So um, it's sort of a mutual confluence of uh, two dilemmas that I and uh, my friend Monik had. Uh, my dilemma was that I was, I've long been a sort of fervent advocate of, of, of Rails in various public forums because of work that I'd done on uh, my, uh, the sort of startup that I created, lovetastic.com, which was a little social network. And um, people would oftentimes come to me wanting, uh, wanting assistance in developing applications for their startups, and I was simply too busy at the time to do that. Um, so that was, that was my dilemma. And uh, in the I had hired uh, Monik's firm in the past because I had met him at RailsConf and was very impressed at his sort of uh, understanding and belief in the philosophy of Rails and why Rails is better than other uh, other ways of doing things. And sort of, uh, he talked very articulately about sort of uh, the getting real philosophy and his belief in that and uh, his understanding uh, or, or his affinity for things like RSpec and uh, RESTful development. And so I was very impressed to see uh, a firm in India, uh, which you know is sort of conceptually very remote and is also uh, a country that deals primarily in uh, sort of Microsoft technologies and that kind of thing, to be so uh, to be so enthusiastic about Rails. So I, I hired them. Was very impressed with the work that they did. It was superior to other firms that I had hired in the United States that were charging much more. And uh, so we, we got to be friends over this period of time. Uh, and he expressed to me his dissatisfaction with a lot of the clients that he was having. Um, in that they were oftentimes people who were just coming to him because he was in India, because they were expecting that he would charge less. And so they were people who weren't so much committed to the concept of the fact that they were writing better code or uh, 
or even committed to the the applications that they wanted to have built, they would oftentimes like bail out a couple months later. So uh, his dilemma was he was having trouble getting good clients. My dilemma was I was having people coming to me who wanted to be clients, who had great, interesting projects, but I just didn't have time to work with them. So I knew that they were doing really great stuff. So we decided to partner up with a couple of test clients. And over time, uh, it's grown into an exclusive relationship where uh, I act as a sort of uh, liaison, uh, dealing mostly with companies in Cambridge, startups in Cambridge, um, and go meet with them, establish requirements, and uh, sort of offer suggestions based on my experience and uh, sort of general knowledge of Rails uh, based on other projects I've done. And then uh, pair them up with developers on our team and then manage that process over time. So that's sort of how it works broadly. And uh, it worked out, you know, originally they were my contractors, but over time, you know, we work together very closely and we are effectively one company now. Now you have 14 people, the majority of those are in India or how much, what's the split? I'm the only one in the United States actually. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm based in Boston and the rest of them are based in New Delhi. Monica comes over here uh, at least once a year for RailsConf, but that's about the extent of it. Now, you've made a distinction, which I don't think I understood the first time, between outsourcing and offshoring. Uh, what's, what's the difference between those? Yeah, well, people oftentimes use the terms interchangeably, but my like personal uh, understanding of the term is maybe idiosyncratic, but I think it's the best. Outsourcing is any time you ask for help for your company from another company. So uh, I outsource all the time. So, uh, you know, I have an assistant who answers support emails for one of our companies. I have a company that does fulfillment for one of our companies. They're both based in the United States. But I certainly consider that outsourcing because I'm just asking for, uh, I'm outsourcing a particular task to another company. Offshoring is specifically when you are trying to take that task abroad to another country who, uh, where the cost of living is lower, specifically in order to get a discount on that labor. And so you're, you're acting as a sort of uh, labor arbitrageur and you're, you are mostly interested in the price. And so it's, I guess the difference is really the motivation, right? So are you outsourcing to the outsourcing? Generally speaking, you're looking for the best person to do the job when you don't believe that doing it internally is the best way to do it. Oftentimes there's money savings, but that's not necessarily the case. Offshoring, the motivation is to save money based on international boundaries and costs of living. I've been thinking a little bit about economics, reading some books recently. Given the fact that the U.S. dollar, at least over the last couple of years, has taken a bit of a hit, does that change the scene at all, or is there still a significant disparity, let's say, between here in India, the Philippines, even Vietnam, that that's still very desirable? Or does that kind of change the scene over the next 10 years? Well, there are, I suppose, multiple layers to that question. The The thing is that, I mean, yes, there's absolutely a difference in cost of living between, for example, if I had a team of 14 developers in Boston versus a team of 14 developers or however many developers who are uh, who's based in New Delhi then there's a huge disparity between costs. Now, over time, uh, particularly over the past couple of years, the uh, dollar has precipitously dropped, unfortunately, which makes traveling abroad very expensive. And it also makes uh, buying goods and services in foreign markets more expensive for people in the United States. Um, 
So I suppose to some extent that affects our business, but to draw on that distinction again, I don't think that I don't think of us as an outs- as an offshoring firm. I think of us as an outsourcing firm, and you know, I don't think that there's much of a difference between if you unless you're hiring a developer literally to sit in your offices and work with you in house. If you're going to hire someone across town or somewhere in another part of the country, and you're only going to deal with them by email, um, then there's really effectively no difference. Uh, if that developer is in Chicago or if that developer is in New Delhi. Um, so what should really matter is the quality of the code that is delivered and uh, the quality of communication and the sort of uh, the relationship that you feel that you have with the people. So um, I guess that's the distinction I would make between offshoring and outsourcing. And so I'm like I'm somewhat less interested in currency rates. I mean, it, it sort of affects the way we handle accounting and all of that sort of stuff. But we're we're much more focused on doing uh, quality work than taking advantage of that disparity. The advantage, I guess, that we get out of it is that by um, by virtue of the fact that the cost of living is much lower in New Delhi, we're able to support an infrastructure of developers, which is a much, large, a much larger group of people, and still be selective about the work that we take. So if I had all of my developers based in Boston, which is where, where the cost of living is extraordinary, then... Um, I would have to really be churning out the billable hours every month and uh, and also be charging a lot. And uh, having developers living in a, a country where the cost of living is lower means that we're able to be much more selective about the work that we do. It also means that when we don't have work, we can spend a lot of time uh, developing our skills and working on our own internal projects. So uh, the advantage, I think, is that it makes us a much better firm by virtue of the cost disparity. It doesn't necessarily make us a vastly cheaper firm, although I will say that we're, you know, orders of magnitude cheaper than a lot of uh, what a lot of what U.S. firms are charging now. So. so in a sense, you're just expanding your market for the developers that you could work with in saying, okay, we need, we need a developer, we need a team, we need an assistant, and we don't have to just look in the United States. We can look worldwide for the people that work best with us and believe in our philosophy and uh, that we can work work best together with. Right. I mean, I, I think that, you know, maybe this is sort of my liberal worldview, but I, I don't really like to make too many distinctions based on international boundaries. And I don't, there's always been a tendency in every country. It goes, you know, goes back to 1699 when there were riots of silk workers against, uh, in England against uh, the import of cheap British textiles. You know, there's always this tendency to, you know, be worried about shipping jobs overseas. But I don't inherently believe that people uh, in India are somehow less deserving of good jobs than people in the United States. The 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 international boundaries are somewhat arbitrary to me. So um, that question seems somewhat. Uh, I mean, that question doesn't concern me. The question is, do these people actually care about what they're doing, and can they do it well? Now, the fact that we can uh, take advantage of the fact that we can keep these people on our payroll not so uh, expensively uh, and ha- have developers who uh, can spend a lot of time developing their skills and not necessarily doing billable hours means that uh, we can provide a better service but I'm not you know I'm in I'm in it because we're doing fun stuff together and that's what matters last week I recorded a podcast which will be posted probably before this one with a gentleman from Heroku who were talking about the fact that access to all these kinds of options for outsourcing really makes it a lot easier for small businesses to get up and going. It reduces the overall cost of doing something like operating a 
t-shirt business when you have third-party printing, delivery, uh, all that. You've done that with Ruby Rags. Yes, absolutely. Um, although we actually don't do too much outsourcing when it comes, uh, do, don't do any offshoring when it comes to Ruby Rags, but we do uh, a lot of outsourcing. So, you know, they do the shipping, they do the, um, uh, they being someone who's not me. <laughs> uh, other people do shipping for me. Other people do the design. So it's really great. You know, outsourcing, I think, although taking, theoretically taking, uh, some work or jobs away from one company just you know creates these tremendous cascade effects across the economy, and you know this is true with our consulting company as well. My consulting company, even though it's just me here in the United States, I have a, a lot. I create a lot of business locally in the United States, and uh, as a result of that, uh, you know almost as much work is generated in the United States through ancillary people that I hire as is generated in India. So you know it's it's not a zero sum game, which is a very cool thing. Now, why did you start Ruby Rags? Was it just kind of a interesting experience? Did you think there was a big demand? Do you hope to actually have that be a bigger part of your business income? Uh, well, yeah, no, I'm not particularly interested in it for the income. It's just sort of a little uh, thought experiment for me. It's just a fun project. Uh, one thing that was fun about it is I got to learn all about fulfillment and how to ship things. But also, it's just like it's just kind of an idea that I believe in. There's been this uh, sort of controversy in the Rails community over the past couple of years about whether we should be more assimilationist and kind of uh, tone down our rhetoric about being proud about Ruby and what makes us different in terms of technical values from other communities. Uh, and I actually come down sort of on the uh, David Hansen side of things, I suppose, <laughs> in that uh, I, you know, I, I think it's irresponsible if you're a consultant, for example, providing services to not very passionately believe in the superiority of the technology that you're advocating. You know, they don't just People don't just hire us to, to churn out code, they hire us to give them advice. And in order to do that, you have to believe in something and understand why your platform is maybe better than others. And the discourse between that community and other communities is good for both communities because uh, we get to say what, what we're all about, why, why MVC matters and why modularization matters, why dry matters, and why all the things that are baked fundamentally into our platform uh, are superior. So, you know... To me, Ruby Rags is cool because it's like a way to literally allow people to plaster on their chests a way of saying, you know, I believe in Ruby. I think Ruby is cool. And, you know, I suppose we should back up and say Ruby Rags is a, is a company that sells Ruby and Rails themed t-shirts uh, for people who are wondering. But the, uh, the idea of that is to allow people to, you know, it's like a community spirit building exercise. And so people can sort of show their pride about being into Ruby. The human billboard. Yes. Now, do people... You take submissions from the community, you do kind of a th threadless, you know, one can't talk about t-shirts online without mentioning exactly. threadless, it's kind of a threadless-like model where you, do you choose which shirts get published or other people vote up what they think is interesting? Uh, it's sort of, it's been like a completely ad hoc thrown together approach so far. So uh, what I first did is I commissioned some illustrators uh, to design uh, ideas that I thought were interesting to me. So it's like it's very self-indulgent to me because I just I really love illustration and illustration is really cool and fun to me, but I'm not any good at it. So I get to hire these really cool people to do stuff that is neat for me and then, you know, make it a business expense. <laughs> so it's a nice excuse to do that. But over time, uh, people have been submitting, uh, sending submissions about uh, whether they're just concepts or actual illustrations. So I'm going to start posting those. People can vote for designs right now. And so what usually happens... 
it's not as transparent a voting system yet as on Threadless, but I do look at those numbers and the things that people have voted for most are the things that get printed next. So. Now, any chance that you'll go into the uh, very popular vinyl toy market? Do you want me to pose for a bobblehead or something? <laughs> yes, absolutely. I can't wait to do that. So one of the first Rails projects you did, or at least publicly, was Lovetastic. You wrote an article about that experience for Vitamin, arguing that maybe niche social networks aren't a very good idea, at least not financially. Yeah, so I mean, I think that the ultimate conclusion of the article, uh, uh, this, the title of which was Social Networks Aren't Products, is that uh, social networks have or niche social networks in particular, do have a definite social value in that they can bring together communities of people who share... Uh, I mean, this is what the Internet is all about, after all. People who have very minority interests can come together in a way that is specifically selective to their community. So that has, like, tremendous social benefits to that community and allows people to feel very good and uh, allows them to know that they're not alone in whatever sort of um, community that they're a part of that is very much in the minority. So in that sense, social networks are really great. I'm uh, very proud to have been a part of Lovetastic, which definitely has a, an explicit social mission behind it. But um, the the broader issue is whether niche social networks and you know, or date you know and I include, definitely including dating sites among these are a good idea for you know creating the next hot new startup that's going to make a million dollars. And I think ultimately there's like there's a fundamental paradox in the business model of social networks that says that that really can't work unless you are one of the first people to have created a social network. In that the inherent value of a site that people are going to be paying for, what you know, you have to think about what are people paying you for when they're going to buy a subscription on your dating site, um, to give an example of pay sites. And the answer is that they're paying you for access to a large number of people. You know, uh, a social network is not a product, it is a party, and you're throwing a party, and it's about uh it's not about how good i think in the article i said it's not about how good the cupcakes are you know it's about how many people show up right so you can spend all the time building the most wonderful application uh making you know having great tests and making sure you could you know make changes rapidly wonderful design and everything like that but one if one person signs up on your site it's uh you know, compare it to Basecamp. If one person signs up on Basecamp and thinks, wow, this is a great application, I love the interface, it's great. Basecamp has one happy customer. If one person signs up on the, the niche social network and thinks, wow, this is a great idea, how cool it is to be a part of this, but where's everybody else? It's, it's of no use to them. So what happens is that over time, people sign up on the site, they have this expectation that they're, you know, they're comparing you to Match.com or MySpace or whatever, and so they sign up and they're like, wow, this is cool that there's a community devoted to my concept, but there are only a few thousand people on here. You know, this is, this is boring. Where's everybody else? And then they stop. They, this, you know, they'll say, oftentimes we would hear from people who would say, uh, I'm so excited that you have created this. I'm going to just delete my profile and come back now in six months when the site is bigger. <laughs> you know? uh, and if you realize that if you get enough people like that, it sort of creates a self-fulfilling problem. Uh, so... Uh, uh, this is like this is a basic paradox of the social network's value is not in the quality of the product itself; it's in the number of people who you gather. So you're not going to yet. You know, it's an extremely competitive industry. So the only way to, as with all businesses, the only way to compete is to differentiate and be very specific. 
So they're like two completely mutually clobbering uh, business necessities. And uh, it's really hard to make money doing that. Dude, I guess I'm still a little bit skeptic and maybe I'm not the target market for most social networks, but... You know, I just can't really count that many people who I have met on a social network who I have then become good friends with. Usually it happens to be over email. I'll converse with somebody and, and then maybe, uh, you know, I'll see them in person at some time. You know, do social networks, can they fulfill such a thing as much as, you know, finding the love of your life? Well, I mean, it certainly worked in my case. Uh, I met my husband on Lovetastic, and so that was like that was the explicit goal of the site. Um, so you can absolutely find people, but the the question, you know, I'm very skeptical of this whole broad, huge movement now of people to create social networking startups of every conceivable stripe and color imaginable. Um, in terms of building the, building businesses around them over time, I'm as a programmer and as a consultant, I think that. I and my my colleagues are much more interested in building products that actually do things and allow people to sell things and allow actual real world things to happen. Um, over time, I think uh, we'll find that there will be a, f a handful of social networking sites that are the canonical place to go to find your friends or to find a huge group of people, and so they'll be valuable in that they're a nucleus of you know a huge number of people all gathered in one space. But over time, I think we'll see that a lot of these new startups sort of fizzling out, hopefully, maybe. <laughs> so if somebody's trying to build the next Facebook of anime lovers, it's really, well, Facebook is already it. Just start an anime group on it. Yeah, I, that's unfortunately the way it's heading. I, I mean, I think that there are a couple of, like, a couple of side examples where if you're very clever about it, you can actually make it work. Uh, I think that, uh, what is that, what's the wine site that uh, uh, Cedarholm does? Yes, exactly. And... Um, I think that's a good example in that they uh, it's semi-social in that there uh, are people doing reviews and stuff like that, but there's a built-in revenue model in that there's, they're, I'm assuming that they're essentially selling wine and getting affiliate uh, uh, percentages on that. So there's, they're, actually, they're actually helping to move product. They're not just like selling ads that are never going to sell any products. You know, like how much... Uh, how much detergent or whatever it is that they sell on face, you know, on the Facebook ads, how much product does that actually sell? You know, I'm always very skeptical of selling advertising in general because you're, you're like selling the sort of the theoretical promise of something to people, especially when you have like a huge diverse market. And so, uh, like just selling advertising isn't terribly compelling to me, but there are some social networks that actually are involved, uh, in selling actual products. And not just like exploiting people who happen to be there by selling stuff to them, but actually providing value by say, like Court does by saying, you know, uh, yeah, we're going to get earn some affiliate codes on stuff that we sell, but we're we're adding value by allowing people to give reviews and maybe make decisions not to buy wine that they might otherwise have bought. So that to me is very cool, and we sort of prefer to be involved in that kind of thing. There's a whole you know this is going way off topic, but well, Court itself was actually bought by. A wine distributor company, really? so it's actually run by by a company that distributes wine, so it feeds directly into that. I think there's a huge opportunity. I happen to run into Patrick Crowley, Rails developer from San Diego, who made a site for sharing templates for the OmniGraphle diagramming application, and now that's going to be actually possibly, uh, you know, hooked into that. But it seems like there's 
that's kind of a different kind of social network where it's not just relationships, not to discount relationships, but people are actually sharing, you know, a little bit of a piece of something they've created, namely a template for this particular application, which becomes useful to the users of it and potentially even the company that wrote the application who, who knows, would want to incorporate that or even in, uh, buy the product outright. Right. We need to make a distinction between, like, you know, far too often people just jump into something because, like, everybody else is doing that and haven't really fully thought out their motivations. So, so you know, like, a lot of people are making social networking startups and a lot of people are just jumping into them without thinking about, well, what exactly is the point? And so we need to make a distinction between social networks that are that we want to create because they make the world, the the internet better and the way we interact better. Um, and then there are social networks that are about making money. And uh, as long as you have clear in your mind the distinction between those two and which you are, then I think that's totally fine. I think it's it's very reasonable to be a site that's not about making money, um, but is about gathering together a community. And fortunately, things like Rails make. Web development on a semi-large scale, sufficiently affordable to make that make sense, um, but uh, we just need to sort of be honest with ourselves and not think that we're going to be the next, um, you know, be bought out by a venture capital firm in six months just because we're a social network. Seems disingenuous to me, anyway. Thanks also to Rails Machine for providing hosting and bandwidth for the show.